95 BFM's Art Bank. That was John Carroll Kirby, and I'm on the line uh, with, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is Brent, is it Coots? Yes, Brent Coots. Yes, and I'm on, on the line with historian Brent Coots. Uh, how's, your, how's your morning going, Brent? Um, good. I'm in um, Nelson and uh, to do a, a talk on um, gay World War II soldiers tomorrow on Anzac Day as part of Nelson Pride. Um, it's a little bit cold outside, but it um, looks like it might clear up. And you're normally based up here, aren't you? Yeah, um, it's a busy week for me because uh, later this week, um, finally, a, a, new, a new book comes out, a sort of multi-sectional book, which I've been um, doing um, with actual uh, design and layout done by George Hajian from AUT um, about um, gay liberation, uh, in 1972, um, and the beginning, which is the beginning of the movement, which is exactly 50 years ago. I know it's quite remarkable that I'm also, if I'm correct, I'm speaking to you from, you know, the BFM station, which is just above yep. the University of Auckland Quad, where a lot of, kind of, you know, key events were happening, just 50 years ago. Yeah, um, I guess we've got some key dates. Um, uh, it was um, Nahuya. Um, Volkering at the time, Nahuya Tawapatuku today, um, she's kind of the catalyst, a very important figure, um, who um, set, set out an invitation to form a group of gay liberation activists on the 15th of March at open mic uh, lunchtime in the quad. I'm not sure, I don't think you have open mic lunchtime now, um, but it was a feature of the 1970s. Um, the first uh, meeting of the Auckland Gay Liberation Front was held uh, right where you are um, on the 21st of March. Um, so, uh, and then, then a series of events, um, really April is the month, um, take place at that point. So, um, for people who aren't familiar with the Gay Liberation Front, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it is 50 years of history. How would you kind of introduce uh, that group's work and also their achievements? Um, well, I wanted to write a book um, about this moment because I realised that uh, I wasn't seeing people talk about um, gay liberation and the 50th anniversary. Um, and when I think of historical forces that shape my world, gay liberation ideology would be historically significant. So, you know, um, historical forces is an idea or, or ideology or concept, even a condition which promotes change. And gay liberation ideology focuses gay rights activism, which is a slightly different thing, um, partly in adopting a direct action activism stance, becoming more more radical, more confrontational, more visible. Um, so the movement that was established wanted to achieve liberation first for ourselves, for um, LGBT+, plus, I guess we would describe that today, um, and then society. Um, uh, and of course, um, the wider New Zealand community eventually, I think, has accepted most most people have accepted this this new ideology, this gay liberation ideology, as a normal way of thinking today. And so, I think, in terms of as something historically significant, there's been huge attitudinal change, as well as lots of law change as a result of um, this movement being created 50 years ago. So, I thought it was worth writing a book and doing a project and, and just marking this event. 
And uh, for people who haven't encountered your work before, you sort of seem to, you know, have a few different areas of particular interest. Uh, one of which is, you know, your your previous book, Crossing the Lines, was about uh, gay soldiers in World War Two, and you've also written a book about protest. And I was curious about that. Is protest a particular area of research for you? Um, I guess um, I was kind of interested in that. I've also done a, a Pacific history book. Um, I think protest um, was way was a was a way of looking at the past and and framing change. Um, Protest in New Zealand, I wrote hoping to get um, some perhaps um, alternative histories taught uh, and looked at in in New Zealand schools. Um, it has a um, chapter on gay liberation uh, and the gay liberation movement in New Zealand um, in that book, along with other protest movements like second wave feminism, anti-Vietnam war protests, etc. So I guess so. I guess I've been interested in looking at um, queer history um, as, as well. That's kind of a focus. And I'm actually quite interested in art history, so queer art history. Um, I wrote um, uh, a, a piece of writing for um, Rereading the Rainbow, which came out in 2017, which framed a narrative for um, LGBTQ uh, artists and, and created an art history narrative um, from the period of um, the late 60s through to the mid-90s. Well, this new book is a real art object, isn't it? Like, it's this, uh, these kind of sectional or modular uh, elements designed together. I don't know quite how you'd describe it, but it very much has a home in a art publication context. Yeah, it's a work of art in itself. Um, there's a forward that kind of folds out um, there's a history of 1972, which is, is, a, is a really detailed piece of writing. Um, um, I, 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 I kind of like the detail, and so it's almost one to say, well, what, you know, it could be written in less detail, but I really wanted to be able to look at it almost day by day. Um, but there is a series of photographs. Um, I collect art and own a collection of documentary photographs by John Miller and Max um, Oppoli, and... I approached the artists and they kindly allowed their photographs to be published. Um, they are both heterosexual photographers, um, but they were there at the time and friends, um, allies with um, many of the activists, and came along and took photos of the events. Um, John's photos are of the Gay Day happening, which takes place at um, Albert Park, uh, by the university on the 11th of April in 1972. And this is um, a conscious-raising visibility day. It's definitely not a protest day. Uh, protest, it's a conscious-raising day, and they call it a happening. Um, conscious-raising, consciousness-raising isn't really understood, I don't think, today. It's certainly a very 70s thing. Um, it's about education. It's about um, putting out the message of who you are. Um, and, and what your ideas are and sharing those ideas. Um, Max's photos are off the first zap on the 17th of April. Um, a zap is a form of direct action protest methods. Um, in this situation, it's a zap where a group of people turn, turned up at the office of the Registry of Births, Deaths and Marriages where they demand services, I guess. They demand to be given, a male couple demands to be given a marriage certificate. Um, and then 
Um, look, so, so those, those are what the, the photograph sections are. Um, the first protest march didn't actually take place until the 26th of April, which, of course, is coming up um, ahead of us. Uh, is something to think of. It was a group, the group of activists marched down um, Queen Street to protest at the US consulate, which had denied Nahuya Volkering, Nahuya Tawakotuku, a visa. Um, uh, so, yes, we have the, sec- the section of the photographs, and they've actually never been published before um, uh, as a group, so that's really exciting. Um, and then there's a section of primary documents. Um, it's in a story, and we love primary documents because they allow us to go back in time to get really close to the event, to understanding how people at the time understood the event. Um, and the final section is kind of like a detailed timeline, sort of a day-by-day timeline. When you talk about uh, you use phrases like consciousness raising and zap, are these are these retroactive? designations or are they terms people were using at the no, time? No, that's what they called them at the time. Yeah. Where were they inheriting um, these lovely, from? lovely 1970s language. <laughs> we, should, we should keep using them. Were they, um, you, were they terms coined by the Gay Liberation Front or were they uh, inherited or borrowed I think from previous? I terms to do with the counterculture. Um, yeah. Second wave feminists were involved in consciousness raising and second wave feminism history is about groups of women meeting for teach-ins, for consciousness raising sessions, having consciousness raising groups uh, where they looked at patriarchalism, they looked at sexism, they looked at ways to overcome that. Yeah, it was a, a, a feature of the time. And in the way that you have created this book, you know, you have these uh, these primary documents, these photographs, uh, you're writing, and they're all kind of, you know, as individual segments. They're books that form a coherency through a kind of juxtaposition rather than interpolation. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, I mean, what's the appeal for that of that to you as someone who has written history in a more traditional, uh, you know, the, the kind of linear prose way? Um, I think I see it all as connected through. It's almost like these are just, uh, to me, it's, they're just different sections of the books. And often books, you know, there are books that publish primary documents, but we just wanted to to have things in, in the separate sections. We thought it was an interesting way of presenting it. There are photographs, uh, other photographs, throughout the, um, the piece of writing about 1972. Um, they, they match up with the different... Um, um, parts of the text that go along there. So um, those those we researched down in, in, um, at Laggins. Laggins um, archive is within the Alexander Turnbull Library in Wellington. Um, there aren't many photographs, though, uh, uh, visuals from the time. Things have not survived. People, people didn't have cameras like they do today. Everyone has a cell phone with a camera now. And... Um, People didn't have cameras because they couldn't afford them, or they just didn't have them. Um, and 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 even if more photographs were taken, they're not necessarily passed across to an archive. Um, queer history can e- has easily often been lost. And what kind of uh, prompted this project? I mean, you were saying you you were you know seeing that this uh, anniversary wasn't being. Uh, maybe acknowledged in the way that you wish to ha- it would be, but you know there's a lot from that feeling to having this beautiful publication. I mean, how did you start talking to George about it? Um, I I have been having an idea of, of a project. I've 
I, I kind of, um, I'm, I'm quite interested in, um, I guess, queer history. Um, uh, and I felt that it would be interesting to put together an argument, because history is an argument, um, about um, the year, but also about the series of historical forces that led to 1972. Because I, I think that one of the things which frustrates me about people looking at the past today is often people assume that it was inevitable, it, that it was ine inevitable that change took place. It was never inevitable that um, gay liberation would lead to significant attitude shifts or law. Um, as historians, we hate teleological progression, which assumes the outcome would have always happened. Because for us, history is contingent on certain things happening. And so in this narrative, it's uh, changing medical opinion, changing religious opinion, perhaps the public reaction to the Aberhart murder in Christchurch, uh, changing legal opinion with jurisprudence. Um, and, I, and I wanted to produce also a history, an inclusive history, which looked at the wider narrative. Often when people talk about the events in 1972 with gay liberation, they simply um, want to name Nahuya Tawapotuku as the catalyst. She is very important, but I think it's also important to acknowledge there were other activists who were involved in, in the movement. Um, there's often a laziness with queer history that takes a sort of intentionist approach. Intentionist history is, is that kind of great man, great woman history where you know, um, you focus on that one individual. Yet, I think in 1972, in the spirit of the time, the movement was a much more collective and communal structure run on very egalitarian um, ways. Um, this would slightly change from a, a few years later to where, where the groups often formed themselves into a more formal leadership structure with a president and secretary and treasurer. But at the time, it was very much a communal writing. Um, situation. And I also wanted to make sure that the writing was not just about the Auckland. It's um, often um, in New Zealand we have there's a tendency for um, people writing about um, the, the LGBT community to be Auckland-centric. Um, far too much of what is written about 1972 and gay liberation only focuses on Auckland. So the writing includes, includes an analysis of events that are happening in Wellington and, and happening at, at um, Christchurch, and I kind of felt that those things perhaps um, needed to be readdressed. Um, Nahuya um, uh, pulled back um, from becoming involved um, uh, in June. Um, she focuses on Māori activism and her own academic studies. So one of the issues that I hope I'm highlighting is that um, there are other people also that were really important and, and equally involved. I think um, there's certain themes that come through. One is, uh, is um, the issues of activism at this time is burnout <laughs> um, for those that are heavily involved. Um, another theme is that um, the activists are constantly disappointed they aren't getting other people involved in activism. Um, often other people, um, are, you know, other gay and lesbian people would be supporting social events, but they wouldn't turn up to meetings, and meetings would just be a little handful of people. They wouldn't turn up to political activism. Maybe there's continuity to, with, to, with people today. Um, uh, and, I, and I wanted to focus it across the whole year. Um, at Auckland University, a gay week's held for the first time at the beginning of June. Um, and there's a day-long um, National Gay Liberation Conference held on the 26th of August. 
uh, bringing together gay and lesbian activists from Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch for the very first time. Uh, in November, the very first um, gay liberation publication called the Gay Lib News um, was produced. It would be kind of a quarterly publication continuing for a few years. Um, uh, so I wanted to cover cover the whole year. I certainly think um, for activists, I mean, it was a very exciting time um, for those that were involved. Um, but it's historically significant. It's, it's the inauguration of a new era of political visibility, a new era of assertiveness. Um, it's the beginning of an assertion of legitimacy, uh, a claim to full citizenship by the queer community. So... I felt there needed to be someone putting out something and marking the occasion, um, which has sort of flown under the radar. Well, would, um, I haven't seen much on am, or talking I, about it. Am I right in uh, thinking, is 1985 the year of legalisation? Uh, 86. 86. So I guess that's one of the um, outcomes, one of the consequences of gay liberation. And it's remarkable to think that this organisation is very vocal, very visible, very active from 1972, and it takes another 14 years to legalise yeah. for the homosexuality yeah, legalisation. Um, national coordinated group um, is formed in 1977. But yeah, 1986, they finally achieve um, the first piece of legislative um, law change. And of course, that was just um, uh, the legalisation of male homosexuality. Um, but at that time, it wasn't the, the passing of protection under the Human Rights Act. That would be uh, no, that wouldn't happen until 1993. And you know, I don't. Maybe I'm mistaken again, but I don't hear a lot about uh, the Gay Liberation Front now. Did they dissolve at some point, or are they still active? Um, the Gay Liberation Front was one group that lasted for a couple of years. By 1977, there are 33 groups nationwide. Um, uh, one could argue that the gay liberation movement continues to today, that there are still groups uh, of gay liberationists engineering change. Um, mm. uh, one could argue that um, the groups that promoted civil union, that promoted um, marriage equality, are all gay liberation movement groups, that the movement has continued in, in some form right up to the present day. Do you think there's a kind of, I mean, maybe that's part of that teleological history where there's an assumption that, uh, you know, that the idea of, of gay civil rights is broad enough to encompass all these things, but the term gay liberation has a very specific meaning. Um, if I, if I um, yeah. Do you think that, is that, would that be accurate to say? I mean, does yeah, gay liberation, guess, it's guess, a certain set um, of values. Yeah, I guess one, consider, one, one might now consider it to be queer liberation movement. Um, if we wanted to be broader, um, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with the word word gay. It was it's very interesting. In 1972, there are very intense debates uh, at some of the meetings held at Auckland University um, by the initial activists. What are they going to call themselves? Uh, are they going to call themselves homosexual? Uh, many rejected that because it was seen as a medical term. Uh, a lot put forward the idea of using the term homophile, the homophile liberation front. Uh, in the end, the word gay won over because it was a term used by American um, activists at the time, uh, and um, and many of the and, and, and it was had been adopted in, in, in the United Kingdom as well. 
um, in Australia was about to be adopted. So um, that term gay arrived in 1972 as an identity descriptor. Um, and of course, at the time, gay was used for men and women. And that, on top of that, the term liberation, which does, I mean, I suppose it's that idea of citizenship. Yeah, taking away all the things which limit, that place limitations on one's lives, that which might be law change, but it's also attitudinal change. There's a, um, a, a, nice, a nice quote I read recently where um, talking about um, uh, the, need to, the need to liberate um, first ourselves and then liberate society. Uh, um, at the time, when the, the discussions are, and the discussions are using the terms gay and lesbian, uh, it was all about um, first learning to accept and love yourself, before, uh, and then make changes to the rest of the world. Because um, at the time, a lot of people bought into the notions that, that were quite negative towards their identity as LGBTQ plus. And this is the first. Uh, this is the first entry in what's proposed to be an ongoing series. And I've just got the the back matter says that queer art narratives focus on the visual record related to same sex desire and sexual attraction in New Zealand art history. And I was curious, you know, I mean, from 1972, a year in focus. Where do you see yourself going? Like, is it? Um, it's such a it's such a massive have a subject. Plan. <laughs> but I'm not sure if I want to announce um, straight away, but I will say I have a series of books. Um, there's been quite a number of uh, um, queer individuals who um, have been um, marginalised. Um, I'm working on um, a small project, um, which might be the next one, um, a ceramic artist, um he is 94 years old, still alive, living in Dunedin, um, who, um, looking at his, his art practice, was in the 60s and 70s, um, and looking at his work. Um, uh, and so bringing forth some of those, those marginalised voices to show, yeah, we were here, um, we made contributions, um, uh, and, and explore their lives through these narratives. And are you sort of working in a capacity as an independent historian? Um, yeah, I teach history. So, um, uh, you know, I do bring the wage. Um, but I guess um, the thing about um, writing in New Zealand is um, a lot of most writing is done independently. You, you, you use your spare time to write. You use your holidays to research. <laughs> um and... There's no money in writing. <laughs> uh, and if people, you know, if listeners are really keen to have a look at this book, I mean, as you know, I was having a look at some copies at AUT, and it's absolutely stunning. Um, how can they get? How can they get a copy? How can they access it? Um, it will. Um, we're going to have a very private launch uh, because of COVID and because of the particular venue is quite small, um, but. Uh, uh, images and the book will be on um, display at um, Strange Goods, which is an independent um, cooperative bookstore. I think that's that's how you describe it, up on uh, Karanghapi Road, and they'll be there for um, a two-week period.
Oh, thank you so much for speaking to me this morning. Um, and have a wonderful time in Nelson. Yeah, I will. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, have a, okay. have a great day. See ya. So that was Brent Coots talking about 1972, A Year in Focus. Uh, we're going to jump into some Dalian RD and Mapili now. This is US. You're listening to Outback on 95 BFM. 